There we go. All right. I guess maybe that's a little loud. Right? Uh, Revelation chapter 5 this morning. Title of our message this morning is Worshiping the Slain Lamb as we look at Revelation chapter 5, uh, verses 7 through 10. That's the goal anyway. I'm not sure we'll make it all the way through verse 10, but uh, that's what we'll do our best to do this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse look at this wonderful book of Revelation. We find ourselves here really in the beginning of the final section of the book that are speaking of future, that is speaking of future things. We've seen in chapter 1, Primarily the vision of the risen Christ, the one who's delivering this message. And we see this glorious vision of him to get really to get the authority behind what is what is being spoken of here. And also to see that it's primarily a book telling us about the fact that Jesus is coming again to this world to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Really, that's the great promise of the Old Testament is that one day, The Messiah is going to come and make this earth, this literal earth where we are living, a place that God, in the way that God intended it to be. And the book of Revelation is explaining to us the events that will take place leading up to that happening. In the meantime, there are things which are. That's the church age. That's why in chapters two and three, there were messages to seven specific churches churches that existed at that time telling them the ones who received this book literally received it from the apostle John uh, telling them areas in their lives where they need to improve telling them things that that they can be encouraged by and reminding them of the promises that they have of reigning in this future kingdom with the Lord. And of course, those promises apply to us in a, in a secondary manner because we are the church. We are still in this uh, phase of time, if you will, this church age. And so we have these same blessings promised to us as believers in Christ that one day we will reign with Christ. And then we moved in chapter four into the things which will take place after these things. And we see John called up to heaven in a, in a type of the rapture, a reminder of what the rapture of the church is, that he is immediately taken from this earth to heaven and he's in the very presence of God. And we've got a, a, a pretty detailed description of those beings that are around the Lord there, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the entire Trinity is present there in the very throne room of God. And there's a lot of worshiping of God going on there, of course, because there are people who are physically angelic beings and people who are physically in God's presence. And we'll see that again today, worshiping him because he's the creator of all things. He is he's righteous and he is the redeemer of all things. So of course he is worthy of our worship and we will see more of that uh, today as we continue in uh, chapter 5 as we move along. And and, uh, essentially in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and really the rest of the book uh, going forward, uh, John is transported to heaven where he can see future things. And he can see them because in heaven, it's outside of our realm of being, if you will. It's eternal. It's something that is very hard for us to comprehend. But John is able to see the future because God's revealing it to him. But he's also in heaven, this place where there is no time. It's hard for us to imagine a, a place where there is no time. It's not like uh, the, beginning, the beginning of our services when it's five minutes after and, wow, we still haven't started yet. We kind of, that's disregarding time. That's not living without time like it is in, in heaven where there is no time. So, so John can see these events taking place 
he can be shown what's going to happen uh, on, on the earth. And the fact that he is called up to heaven uh, in this rapture-like event and then shown tribulational events and kingdom events and even eternal events, it gives us a very good timeline for the way things are going to happen in the future. Here we are now in 2022, living in the church age. Uh, the next prophetic event to take place that is of uh, kind of great importance to us is this rapture of the church could happen at any time. And then there's the judgment seat of Christ for believers. I believe that's going to take place pretty much immediately after we are raptured to heaven. We the Lord descends in the clouds. Uh, he catches us up to meet him in the air. And then we are taken back to the Father's house. That's what we're reading about here in uh, Revelation 4 and 5. The Father's house, where the Father is. That, that's where we're going to go. We're going to see these same things that John is describing here. It's, it's incredible. But shortly after that, we will give an account for the way that we've lived our lives. And then, according to the timeline that we have here in Revelation, uh, at some point subsequent to that, again, personally, I don't think it's going to be a very long time, the tribulation events will begin. Let's start in Revelation chapter 6. When those are concluded, the Lord will come to the earth, he will eradicate his enemies from this earth, and he will establish his kingdom literally the kingdom upon the earth for 1,000 years. And uh, this is why at Flushing Bible Church, we consider ourselves to be pre-tribulational, meaning the rapture of the church happens pre or before the tribulation period. And we are also pre-millennial, which are two different things. But premillennial means that we believe that the Lord will descend from heaven physically to the earth, physically touch down on the earth in a literal, actual way, and he will establish his then he will establish his kingdom. So he returns pre before the millennial kingdom begins. And now there are all kinds of uh, theological uh, positions on these events. Some people believe the Lord comes after the kingdom. That would be post-millennial. Some people believe that the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation. That would be like a mid-tribulational period. We'll talk about pre-wrath people that, that, well, we'll get into that shortly. Uh, like three quarters of the way through the tribulation. Some people believe that the tribulation takes, or the rapture takes place after the tribulation at the same time that the Lord comes before the kingdom. And so they're post-trib, pre-mill. So there's a big mixture. We are pre-trib, pre-mill, because we consistently, in all caps, translate the Bible literally in a grammatical historical method. And when the conclusions that we come from, from doing that mean that the Lord comes for his church before the tribulation. And then seven years, give or take some time later, he comes again before the kingdom to establish his kingdom on the earth. So we are pre-tribulational and pre Millennial. Last time in chapter 5, we were introduced to this scroll, this sealed scroll that the Lord is about to take and unleash his judgments upon the earth. We looked at some of the various ideas of what this scroll is and essentially came to the conclusion that, well, it's describing the events that are going to take place in the tribulation as this, these seals are broken judgments are unleashed and then more judgments will take place after that it's essentially describing it's a scroll of of what we're reading in revelation 6 really through the end the end of the book and we saw this strong angel 
who asks the question, who can open this scroll? Uh, No one is found on the earth or under the earth because we all as human beings have gone astray. We've each gone to our own way. We are sinful. We are unworthy. Only Christ is worthy to be the one to open this scroll. He is the slain lamb, this lion of Judah we saw last time, the descendant of David, fulfilling all these prophecies from the Old Testament as the only one who is worthy to to judge, the only one who is worthy to rule over this earth. And he's standing there in the throne room of God, receiving this scroll. He is the lion who will rule because he is the lamb who was slain. This is really Christ in his totality. We get a complete picture of of who Christ is, what he's done in the past, what he's doing now, and what he will do in the future here in the book of Revelation. And so today in worshiping the slain lamb, we'll see again this righteous one, the reaction to this righteous one, and then this great reward that is mentioned really even in verses 9 and 10, we see this incredible uh, reward that awaits believers. But we begin again with the righteous one who is Jesus Christ taking center stage as he comes to receive this scroll. Notice Revelation chapter 5 and verse 7. I'll just read down through verse 10. It says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Christ, of course, did this. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Again, Revelation 5, 7, he comes, Jesus Christ, this lion of Judah, the slain lamb, uh, we saw that he was resurrected. He's standing as if slain. We've, we saw he comes and takes the, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus Christ, God the Son, comes, takes the scroll out of the right hand of the Father, who is the one sitting on the throne. We, uh, the lion lamb takes the scroll. He came as a lamb the first time, Revelation 61, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 2 make that very clear. This is the passage that Christ himself read, uh, if you remember from uh, the Gospels, when in the synagogue, when Jesus came to uh, meet with the people of the Lord. That's what uh, synagogue really means, is just is a coming together of the people. That's what Christ was, was doing on that day. And he's asked to read from the, from the law essentially, or the Bible, do the scripture reading on that day. And it just so happens. Well, what do you know? Isaiah 61 is the passage for that day. It says the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to build up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. In the the Gospel of Luke, that's where he stops reading because that's what he came to do the first time, to offer salvation to people, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Hey, Israel, if you will only believe in me, trust in me as your Messiah, then you will enjoy the messianic kingdom, you will enjoy the favorable year of the Lord. He stops right in the middle of the sentence. The rest of the sentence says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. He stopped before that because in his first coming to the earth, 
that's what he was going to do. He was going to proclaim uh, the ability for the captives to have freedom if they will only trust in him. The second time he comes, he will come as the lion, uh, proclaiming the day of vengeance of our God. The rest of Isaiah 61 and verse The Bible is very, very clear, very explicit that the Lord comes in vengeance and then the kingdom comes. I, I, I personally don't understand how any, how anybody, how any person could honestly read the old Testament and come to the conclusion that, oh yeah, the kingdom comes and then the Lord uh, comes to the earth. That is completely, utterly, absolutely Contrary to what the Bible actually says, Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 1, for example, says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you, Israelites, will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle all the nations against Jerusalem. Uh, that, that's all, not just Babylon, not Assyria, all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem. In case you don't know what the Mount of Olives is, he describes it for us. It's right there next to Jerusalem. The Lord's feet will stand on that mountain. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Uh, Psalm chapter 2 and verse 9 makes very clear that the Lord is going to come and rule the nations with a rod of iron. He's not ruling the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, even, yeah, even if your guy gets elected to be the president, uh, that's not the Lord ruling with a rod of iron. The, the Bible makes very clear that Jesus Christ will come and rule from Jerusalem with a rod of iron upon this earth. Revelation chapter 19, when we get there, verses 11 through 16, describe him coming again to this earth to rule the earth with a rod of iron. And then Revelation chapter 20, uh, following that uh, coming again of the Lord, the doom of the beast and the false prophet, just like it talked about in our scripture reading, Daniel chapter 7, the beast being thrown into the fire. Well, that's described in Revelation chapter uh, 19. Verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1. Then, uh, that's a very chronological word. Then, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss, shut it and sealed it over him. Verse four, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That is very uh, chronologically descriptive of the Lord coming again, literally to the earth, then ruling and reigning for 1,000 years. And this is exactly what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 5 is, is the same thing that Daniel was afforded the ability to see in dreams and visions. Here John is taken up to heaven, sees precisely the same thing. Daniel chapter 7, 
verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days. That's God the father. Uh, The son of man, of course, is Jesus Christ came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Christ was presented before God the Father. Verse 14, And to him, Christ, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. John here is seeing Jesus Christ come to the Father, be presented with this scroll, which we're going to see is the events that will lead to the tribulation, essentially, or be the tribulation leading into the kingdom. Essentially, Christ is giving, being given the authority to judge and punish the world for their rebellion against the Lord. And this is going to take place upon the earth. We're going to see there's really, uh, you really have to stretch your imagination to understand Revelation 6 through 19 is talking about anything other than judgments coming upon the world. Uh, Especially in light of the fact that the Old Testament tells us that's exactly what's going to happen. Zephaniah, for for example, you want a good... 10, 15 minute read on the fact that the kingdom comes after a period of judgment. Just read Zephaniah. Zephaniah 1.18 says, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus Christ is the one who is going to exert this uh, punishment, this force upon the earth. And this authority to, to judge and to rule comes from the Father, of course. That's what's being handed over to him here. That's why it's in the Father's right hand on the throne, and the Son comes and takes it. The Father is granting this authority to the Son. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28, kind of a complex uh, passage that John is writing to the Corinthians there, describes this event also. This giving of authority to the Son and then according to 1 Corinthians 15, after the authority is exerted, after the Lord rules for a thousand years on the earth, then he's going to give the kingdom back to the Father. And then we move into eternity. Psalm 8.6 makes this similar point. It says, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And when we read that, just as uh, Psalm 8 Uh, We might come to the conclusion, oh, he's talking about mankind. After all, that was our original, that was God's original intention for man is to rule over this earth, uh, humanity to rule over this earth. But of course, we know the rest of the story. We lost that right due to sin, but there is coming one who is going to do it that's Jesus Christ. He has been, he is the one who will rule over the earth. All things will be put under his feet because he has been given this authority, granted this right to judge and to punish the world for its iniquity. And we're, we're seeing this, uh, we're seeing essentially the transfer of that power from the Father to the Son in this scene that, that John is describing. So uh, notice again uh, where it mentions that, the, that nobody on the earth is, is able to uh, break the seals of this book there, verse 5. Uh, one of it says in one of the el- Revelation five verse five, one of the elders when John breaks into tears, uh, we have the seal 
It's going to be the, the coming of the kingdom, but nobody is found able to open this scroll. I mean, what are, what are we going to do? That causes John to weep. And then verse 5, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book or open the scrolls and its seven seals. Jesus Christ is the one who is opening these seals. Revelation 6 and verse 1, then I saw the lamb, that's Jesus, broke one of the seven seals seals. Jesus is the one who is instigating this wrath upon the earth. All of the tribulation is God's wrath. There really is no other uh, legitimate conclusion that we can come to as we will see that Christ is the one who is breaking the seals, therefore the one who is instigating this tribulational period, this wrath that is coming upon the earth. Christ is the one breaking the seven seals, and since he breaks the seals, that means that, that we saw last time that the trumpets come out of the seals. When the seventh seal is broken, then that... <laughs> Uh, brings forth these seven trumpet judgments. So even way back here, the lamb is the one breaking the seals. Therefore, he's in authority over these trumpet judgments also. When the seventh trumpet blows, we'll see later in Revelation, then these seven bowls of wrath are also poured out. You could say these are seals of wrath, trumpets of wrath, and bowls of of wrath because uh, essentially these are the judgments. These 21 judgments are the tribulational period. It is all God's wrath since Jesus is the lamb, the one who is instigating the very beginning of this tribulational period. So there's a, a theory that I mentioned earlier called the pre-wrath uh, rapture uh, view that essentially says that the, the rapture of the church isn't going to happen until somewhere down here the, because these are these bowls are referred to as the bowls bowls of wrath but like as we as we will see uh, like I mentioned these are seals of wrath trumpets of wrath and bowls of wrath the whole thing is the wrath of of God, not just these bowls, and they make the point that uh, that the wrath of God doesn't really start until the bowl judgments, or some even somewhere in the bowl judgments. So at least three quarters of the tribulational period has taken place, but we're not raptured until way down here. That's that's not a great comfort. Actually, 1 Thessalonians 4.18 says that we are to comfort one another with these words. You know, just kind of don't worry about these judgments. Don't worry about the seals or the trumpets when about, oh, a third or half of the world's population is destroyed in this. You know, don't, don't, don't worry about that. That's just man's wrath or Satan's wrath. That's not really God's wrath. That doesn't happen until down down here. And it almost seems that this term uh, pre-wrath rapture is, is used purposefully to deceive. Uh, yeah, I hate to be harsh, but that's kind of the only conclusion I can come to because we too, as pre-tribulationalists believe that, that it's a pre-wrath rapture also. It's a, it seems to be a purposefully deceptive term like the mid-tribulationalists that view like well that's pretty clear it happens midway through the tribulation you're going through half the second half you'll be exempt from great pre-wrath well what does that even mean it's not a that it has if it's pre it has to be before a distinguishable period of time and even pre-wrath people don't don't necessarily agree when the wrath begins. So it's kind of, it can be used to confuse 
people. Sort of like, oh, another term, let's see, progressive dispensationalism. That's kind of a confusing term, too, because it's not dispensationalism, but they, uh, it's progressive dispensationalism, and it's meant to confuse people. Uh, and so we also believe in a pre-wrath rapture, but understand that the wrath of God begins at the breaking of the first seal, as is very evident in Revelation 6.1, when the Lamb breaks the seals. And then uh, later in Revelation 6.16, when the, when the sixth seal is broken, notice the reaction of the people. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? It's already here. In other words, the, the great day of the wrath of the Lamb is here. Who is going to be able to stand? Answer, not many. <laughs> not many people are going to make it all the way through this period of time. So the scroll is here presented to the Lamb taken from the right hand of the Father. In other words, the authority for this judgment, these judgments to be carried out is coming from the Father, granted to the Son, and He is the one who is instigating the great day of the wrath of the Lamb, as the, the kings of the earth will so perfectly describe it later in Revelation chapter 6. And then notice that there is a great reaction to the Lamb taking this scroll. Verse 8 says, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they began singing a new song, and they, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation." The reaction is that these living beings who are angels, we saw, and elders fall before the Lamb. Uh, when he had taken the book or the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, beginning of verse 8. We see them also doing this in verse 14 of Revelation 5, and the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped the Lord. Notice their, their reaction to being in God's presence and the presence of Christ is literally falling down before him. Extreme humility, extreme uh, reverence for the Lord, almost as if there's no other action that, that could possibly be taken. It is a very appropriate reaction to being in God's presence, of course. I don't, I don't know that this is anything that we can even contemplate, actually, being in the presence of the Lord. It, it, it seems like it's something that you have to experience for yourself to really understand uh, being in the very presence of righteousness in the presence of God. But there are several examples of this happening in the, in the scriptures that we can look to. There's essentially two words here. Uh, pipto is the Greek term for fall down. And it's used several times in people's uh, reactions to seeing the Lord or being in his presence and understanding who he is. That, that's uh, very key to this also, at least in the physical realm. In heaven, it's very obvious who Christ is. And, and when people are seeing these visions of, of the Lord, they're overcome. And that, that's very obvious. On the earth, Jesus is 
majesty was shielded from us on on the overwhelming majority of the time that he was on the earth. But occasionally people understand, get a, a more clear understanding of who he is and their reaction is to to fall down before him. We see that in the uh, wise men coming to Bethlehem when Jesus was born, Matthew 2.11, they fall down and, and worship the Lord. Matthew 17 and verse 6, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus' glory is uh, revealed for a short period of time there to the three, uh, James, John, and Peter, couldn't remember there for a second. Uh, they see there on the on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord in Matthew seventeen six, and they too fall down when they see his his glory revealed. Acts chapter nine and verse four. Paul falls down when he sees the glory of the Lord on the Damascus road. You know, Paul uh, he came very close to encountering the Lord back in in. Acts chapter 7 with Stephen, when the heavens are opened up and Stephen sees the Lord when he is dying, giving his life as a martyr, Paul, known as Saul at that time, is standing right there. Uh, We don't see this sort of reaction until Acts chapter 9 when he understands, acknowledges who the Lord is and sees him and he falls down before him. We've seen John himself do this in Revelation already. Chapter 1 and verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is the reaction that people have to seeing the Lord in all of his glory. This is an appropriate reaction, of course, to being in the very presence of God. And there, there are many, many examples of this throughout the Bible. This is just a quick sample of of these events in the New Testament. You can see very similar things in the Old Testament. Uh, But there's also this word for worship is proskuneo is the the Greek term that is for worship that we see there in Revelation 5.14 when it says that the elders fell down and worshiped before Jesus Christ and God the Father. This is what... uh, Satan wanted Jesus to do in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10 and in Jesus's temptation really before his public ministry begins he's tempted by Satan in the desert this is what Satan wanted Jesus to do worship him rather than God the Father he's calling on him to, he's not as we're going to see he's not calling on him to sing a song or play the guitar or do, you know, something like that. He's calling on him to recognize Satan as his ruler, as his authority, as his God. Jesus, of course, God the Son, refuses to do that. He refuses to proskuneo Satan, to worship him. Another example from the New Testament of someone who rightly does worship Christ, God, is the man born blind from John chapter 9. I love the story of the man born blind. There's uh, several humorous events that take place there when the Pharisees are questioning him uh, about, you know, who is this person who healed you? You know, is he, who is he? Where did he come from? And he's kind of like, Hey, uh, you know, I, I don't really want to speak for him. All I know is I was born blind. I met this man and now I see he healed me of blindness. He didn't actually, he didn't have a complete understanding of who Christ is, but he did know that he fixed his number one physical problem. I couldn't see before, and now I can. Later, however, he meets again with Jesus after he found out that he wouldn't, he wouldn't repudiate Jesus. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, I can't see. I'm completely helpless. I'm, it almost seems like he's still kind of living with his parents uh, because they're able to take care of him. He's not able to take care of himself. Back then in the, in the early first century, uh, and so 
but he's not going to say a word against Christ, so he's put out, put out of the synagogue, which is a big deal. John chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He, the blind man, answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. Verse 38, John 9, and he, the blind man, the man born blind, not blind anymore, said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That's his, his reaction. As soon as, oh, okay, you are it. You are the one. And he worships him. Proskuneo. He recognizes him as his Lord, as, as the one who has authority. That's what worship is. Actually, there, there is a, a mass of confusion about what worship is in the church today. And, you know, you go to uh, the overwhelming majority of churches in the country uh, today, and when they read John 9, 38, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him, I, I, I guarantee you that most people, well, I guess I can't guarantee it. I would think that most people are going to think that, oh man, he raised his hands and started swaying around singing a song and, and they struck up a harp for him to be able to worship Jesus Christ. And that isn't at all what is our, uh, revealed there in the text. He is recognizing him as being his Lord as being the one who has authority over him. That is what worship is. I think that the BDAG, the the Greek lexicon, gives a wonderful definition of what worship actually is. It, It says, worship, to express an attitude or gesture, one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. And that, that is what we do when we come together as a, as a church body on Sunday morning, corporately, that's what we are doing. We are expressing in our attitudes, in the things that we do, that's uh, gestures and, and, and our, our attitude, our thinking and our actions, expressing our complete dependence on and submission to a high authority figure, the highest authority figure, God himself, is what we are doing. And so that this definition here should, should go a long way in shaping our thinking about what worship is. We shouldn't be under the, the misguided uh, thought that, well, we've already worshiped back at the beginning of the service when we prayed and sang songs. That was the worship, and now is kind of the boring part that we've got to sit through before we can, before we can go home. That, that isn't at all the case. The, it's called a worship service. It can be called a worship service, and the entire thing is worship. The entirety of what we are doing here is worshiping God, because like Paul, like the man born blind, we cannot express complete dependence on someone that we don't know. And as great as a song could be, we don't get to fully understand who God is through singing a song written by uh, a fallible sinner, essentially. We're going to have a really hard time coming to an accurate conclusion of who God is by just depending on songs. So that isn't, that isn't the entirety of worship. We're going to see that, yes, there is, there is some music involved here. In verse 8, we see that they're holding harps. So that's a musical instrument. So so music can play a role in worship, but it isn't worship. That isn't exclusively worship. That's a big mistake that people are making 
in the evangelical church today that they think, oh, this is worship and this is the sermon and then we get out of here and go home. The entirety of it is worship because there are different ways of expressing our attitude of gratitude, if you will, uh, towards the Lord. That's what worship is. But at the same time, we have to understand who he is in order to worship him. And we do that through the study, understanding, and application of his word to our lives. So how do we show the God of the universe that we are devoted to him? Uh, Because after all, that's who we're worshiping, right? We're not worshiping ourselves. We are worshiping the God and creator of the universe. We see that theme repeated throughout Revelation 4 and 5 in these various scenes of worship. The fact that he's our creator, the fact that he's our ruler, that he's going to do these things is why we are worshiping him. Verse Chapter 4, verse 11, Worthy are, are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. He's worshipped because he's our creator. He's worshipped because he's going to judge. Chapter chapter 5, verse 9, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. We worship him because he was slain and purchased us with our shed blood, we see in the rest of verse 9. So there are various reasons to worship him, and we learn about those through studying him in his word. But some aspects of of worship, we, we have to recognize God for who he is, and that demands, all caps, reverence. Uh, There's... That is just the way it is in every single one of these instances in the scriptures. People are, when they recognize who God is, they do it in reverence. They're literally falling down before him in worship. And this is, this is why we do things the way that we uh, do things here at Flushing Bible Church. We're trying to do this in a reverent manner, the same way that people did it in the scriptures. I, you know, I'm not really, I'm not a fan of the Queen of England or, or really royalty in general, but it does provide a good example for us in reverence. Uh, when people uh, just think of being a British subject They express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on or submission to a higher authority. That's who the king is in their system, the king or or the queen, and in systems throughout the history of the world. How did people express the fact that they recognize this person as their sovereign? Uh, Did they, you know, wear, come as they are? Yeah, I dress, you know, that's that's a whole nother a whole nother issue. But there there is a there is a a monicum of reverence given to the queen. I assure you that the way you can Google it, YouTube it, whatever the phrase, search for it on YouTube, you can see some quote unquote worship services that if that it if this was done where you're if say for example you're British and you're Doing this shows your dedication to the queen? I mean, we're not worshiping the queen. We're worshiping the God of the universe here. How ought we to do that? It falls far short of what we see in the scriptures many, many times, unfortunately. Uh, We don't see people recognizing the queen as their sovereign by jumping around, flashing lights, playing deafening music and these kinds of things that I don't think that would go over too well with her. I'm not sure that it goes over too well uh, with the Lord either. We, we aren't 
Again, worshiping ourselves, uh, that's, that's what pagans do. That's why pagan worship is so involved in things like, oh, I don't know, immorality and these kinds of things. They're worshiping the, the things that feel good as human beings. That's self-worship in a, in a nutshell. That's not what we are doing. We're worshiping the God who created us and redeemed us and the one who has these incredible things in store for us in the future. And one of the best passages, I think, that points out this idea of worship is John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. If you'll remember, John 4, Jesus meeting the woman at the well. Uh, She, again, doesn't understand really completely at all who he is initially until he starts to point out things about her life that he could not have known any other way other than other than being God and she immediately like the light goes on yes I believe in you and goes and tells everybody about this incredible man that she had just met and they have this discussion about worship in the midst of their of their conversation. She being a Samaritan thinks they ought to worship in one place. Jesus as a Jew tells her, well, you know, as a Jewish person or really we're, we're worshiping the God of the universe. And he has said, we need to do this in Jerusalem. However, there's coming a time when things are going to change Jesus says to her, John four twenty three. but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So there, there are some things we can take away from that. The place of worship is not important. An hour is coming when the place isn't going to be important anymore. You can worship the Lord anywhere. You don't have to be within the confines of our uh, church building. You can worship the Lord in your house, in your car, as you go along the the street. Uh, You can certainly, of course, worship the Lord here. It doesn't have to be in Jerusalem or Chicago or uh, Samaria or any other place. It can be anywhere at any time, but also worship to go along with the idea of it not having to take place in a specific in a specific place. It also is spiritual and not physical. Those two kind of go together. If we have to meet in a certain place, that demands that we're going to do physically certain things. Jesus tells her, well, no, actually an hour is coming when we worship in a spiritual manner, not a physical manner. By definition, if it's in spirit, that means it's not physical. And there are are some conclusions that we can take away from that that we actually have in our church Constitution, Flushing Bible Church Constitution under, uh, I believe it is worship, having to do with music and that kind of thing in, our, in, in the church. Uh, the last paragraph says, since we are called on to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to John 4.23, we maintain that worship should not appeal to the flesh. The worship of God is done with the mind, spirit, spiritual, and with his word, truth, not with the body. Therefore, at Flushing Bible Church, we are not looking for a worship experience, but rather in our worship, we look to transform our fallen minds into the mind of Christ through the study of his word. Uh, Could probably make a change there, a study and application of his word, but we're we're not here to worship God with our bodies. Again, that's what pagans do because they're worshiping uh, humanity. Humanism is another uh, great example of, of the worship of self. That's not what we're doing. We're worshiping the God of the universe and we do it in spirit with our minds and in truth. 
not in error. That's why we have to understand his word. That's why it seems like so often I come up and say, well, boy, that hymn sort of missed the mark because the hymns aren't perfect. We need somebody to write a good hymnal for us. I don't know who that is, but uh, we worship based in the truth. That's God's word. John seventeen seventeen. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's why we spend so much time in the scriptures. And so notice again, Revelation 5, 8, it says again that, that when Christ had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So, Again, there, there are some elements of, of worship that we can take away from this particular passage that I, that I, I think are pretty, pretty clear and set a good uh, outline, if you will, for a worship service. That is prayer, song, and the word. These, first off, well, they're, that they're pictured holding harps, that is uh, an indication that they are playing some sort of song for the Lord, and that is uh, what is taking place here as it's representative of, of musical worship, if you will. And again, uh, you know, what, what kind of of music is appropriate in this instance. And we have to keep in mind again what what we are doing in the worship of and who we are worshiping and what the point of it is in order to come to a conclusion on that. We shouldn't anything that has to do with the worship of the Lord, we ought to be very careful considering who we are worshiping in that regard. Uh, it's got to be something that is appropriate to the occasion. There are, there's a myriad of examples. Uh, uh, you know, that's one thing uh, as far as what's appropriate for a Super Bowl party, for example, and what's appropriate for a state dinner in the White House meeting the heads of, of states of various nations. It's it, very obvious of example of Things that are appropriate in one situation probably aren't appropriate in the other situation. Same thing with music uh, in the church. You can ask any movie director about what music does. I guess we none of us probably know any music directors uh, personally, but nevertheless, you can just sort of pay attention the next time you watch a show or or watch a movie to the music for the various scenes is appropriate for what's trying to be conveyed. Music has an effect on us. If you're into like scary movies, there's scary music. It, it causes a, a reaction in you, whether you really even know it or not, at least subconsciously, there is a, a reaction to the music because it, it is appropriate for the situation. Same thing uh, in the church today. It evokes emotion and feeling. One type of music could have one reaction. Another type can have another reaction. So it's appropriate. It, music needs to be appropriate for what is trying to be accomplished. That's why I don't really think that it's so much about preferences and this sort of thing, you know, I prefer hymns, I prefer rap music and rock music or something like that, that's fine. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that we're worshiping the God of the universe and it has to be something that is appropriate for what is, what is happening. Scott Aniol, is, uh, he has a PhD in these sorts of Topics. He's very obviously very well read and, and astute in these matters. He says of corporate worship, God has designed corporate worship to conform his people into holy and mature worshipers. 
And that is just a wonderful statement about what we do in corporate worship here in the church. We are trying to be conformed into holy and mature worshipers of the God of the universe. Our worship should not mold us into immature children tossed here and there by every wind of the culture that we live in. That is not, that is not the goal of why we meet here. It is to be conformed into his image, the image of the creator, not the image of our culture. And so song obviously can play, does play a very important part in the worship service because it adds to, it's very biblical, obviously. We see it here in Revelation and many, the Psalms. The, the Psalms actually are, <laughs> that's kind of the hymnal for the nation of Israel. Of course, music plays a very important role in, in worship because it, it so perfectly can express our feelings to God. It's, it's a wonderful way of expressing in attitude or gestures, our complete dependence on God as our sovereign, as our Lord. Another way that we do that is through prayer. That's what we see here. Also in these golden bowls full of incense, we don't, again, like so many other times, we don't need to imagine what the golden bowls of incense are. The scriptures tell us right here, which are the prayers of the saints. I think a good... uh, conclusion that Robert Thomas comes to in this regard. He talks about the prayers of the saints for uh, page after page (laughs) and various commentators' opinions on whose prayers those are. He comes to the conclusion, I would probably agree with him, that they're prayers of tribulation saints that are being uh, discussed here. Not, Not really all that important. Uh, whose prayers they are, or who the saints are that the prayers are from. But obviously it states that they're prayers of some believers, saints, going up before the Lord. Incense is, is a good physical picture of prayers going up. That's why God in the law instituted that for the priestly line to offer incense before the Lord. It gave the people, the Israelites, uh, and God to the Israelites was very physical, gave them great physical pictures of the things that God is doing. That's why they literally slaughtered lambs and goats and these kinds of things to physically see uh, what is taking place. Incense is the same thing. Prayers ascending to heaven as the smoke ascends to heaven. There were express rules and regulations concerning the incense and how to the exact combination of the fragrances, the ingredients that went together. And when someone did it in a manner that was different from what was prescribed in the law, typically they, they died. They were killed by the Lord. It was called strange fire in, in one place, I believe. And so, uh, Personally, I'm very thankful that we don't uh, do that anymore, that we don't have to be exact in our uh, combinations of incense, because if we get it wrong, we die. Uh, as a kid growing up in the Catholic Church, you know, they, they do a lot of incense in various places. I'm not sure that that's what the Lord has in mind. Christ fulfilled the law. We're not living under the law anymore. So we don't necessarily need these physical pictures. We have Jesus instead. Praise the Lord for that. But here, John sees these golden bowls full of incense, the prayers going up to the Lord essentially is what's representative there. But it is a good picture for us, for our worship service to have songs and prayer. And of course, we need the word of the Lord. That ought to be the main part of our worship, the main way that we show God that we are his disciples, that that's the way that we are conformed into his image is through the study and application of his word to our lives. That's how we learn who our master is. 
and what he expects of us in return. Songs, again, are written by uh, fallible people, written by artists, uh, poets, these kinds of things, not inspired the way that the scriptures are, literally inspired by the Holy Spirit written down uh, these centuries ago and delivered to us once for all as Jesus Christ was. The Bible is the infallible word of Almighty God, the one that we are worshiping here. Of course, that needs to be the center of our worship is the word. Prayer, in large part, is conforming our minds to the Lord's mind, trying to to get us to uh, be on board with who he is and what his plan is and these kinds of things. That's what Jesus did in the garden. Take this cup from me if it be your will, but not your will, not my will, but your will be done. That's a, a great example for us. We can pray for things and ask him for things. He wants us to do that. We don't have because we don't ask, James tells us. But at the same time, we need to be conforming our image to his image, asking for his will to be done. Songs ought to be appropriate to the occasion, preparing us for the teaching of his word that needs to be, of course, biblically based and accurate to what the text says. And with that, we're going to, uh oh, there it goes, leave it there uh, for today. We'll stop there and pick it up with the reward next time. But we see John here uh, raptured to heaven, given uh, a view of the very throne room of God where he sees this incredible scene of the Lamb coming before the Father, God the Son coming before the Father to receive this scroll. And he is worshipped in great reverence, great fear, and great recognition of who he is, providing us with a tremendous example to follow in the church today. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for this ancient text that still is so applicable to us today. I pray, Lord, that that our worship would be pleasing to you, that, uh, that we would do things here in Flushing Bible Church that are accurate to your word accurate to your intention for the church and you know our hearts lord and and i can i know i can speak for everybody here that our intention is to know you better to serve you better and to recognize you as our lord and our savior and i thank you for purchasing us purchasing us from the from the market of sin and giving us a life of righteousness with you forever i pray that we would uh, walk in that each moment of the day we pray in jesus name amen